Chapter 24 Young Folks' History of the American Revolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colonel Gary Bohannon. GaryBohannon.com. Young Folks' History of the American Revolution by Everett Tomlinson. Monmouth and Newport. As we already have learned, France was the country from which America was expecting the most aid, and with which the greatest efforts to establish friendly relations had been made. At the very outbreak of the war, France, because of her hatred of England, and angry over the loss of her own colonies in North America, had been secretly aiding the leaders of the revolution by giving them money and by permitting privateers to be fitted out in her ports, which were also used as places of retreat in times of peril. Of course, openly France still pretended to be England's friend, and, indeed, her king was said to be strongly on the side of Great Britain, but others besides young Lafayette had sailed across the ocean to aid the struggling Americans. And the sentiment of the people had been very strongly aroused in favor of the nation beyond the sea by the presence among them of shrewd, wise old Dr. Franklin, who had been made sole minister to France by the United States. His quaint style of dress and simple manner of living his ready wit and unpretentious manners, had so endeared him to the French people that, for the time, even Franklin hats and Franklin coats became the rage. But all the time, Benjamin Franklin, honored at home for his homely wisdom, and abroad chiefly for the discovery he had made of the power of electricity, was working steadily to accomplish one purpose, and that was to have France openly declare herself in favor of the new nation, and give her aid in the struggle. Though most of the Frenchmen hated England, and were ready enough to fight, it was their fear that the bulk of the contest would fall upon them if they joined hands with America, and they would not receive very much reward if success should finally crown their efforts, which caused them to hesitate. The surrender of John Burgoyne and the attack which Washington made upon the British at Germantown, though his attack had failed, as we know, led France at last to decide to enter openly into the struggle and early in 1778 a treaty of alliance was made with the United States, and the promise was given that a fleet of 16 war vessels under D'Estaing and an army of 4,000 men would be sent across the ocean to the help of the Americans. Naturally, England at once declared war upon France, and after offering to grant her colonies all that they had demanded at the breaking out of the war, coolly invited them to join her in fighting the Frenchmen. If England three years before this time had made the same offer, doubtless the colonies would have listened gladly. But now it was too late. They had declared themselves to be a free and independent nation, and free and independent they would be. And though Lord North himself, the strongest foe of the colonies, made the motion in Parliament, and was willing to declare that Great Britain would give up all claims to a right to tax the colonies, the leaders of the new nation would not listen. The war must go on. George Washington, in the spring of 1778, was stronger with the people than he had been in the preceding year. The thoughtless crowd had blamed him for the defeats and losses near Philadelphia, and contrasted his failures with the brilliant success of Gates at Saratoga, although we know that Gates really had very little to do with the defeat of Burgoyne, and that it was as much in spite of him as because of him that the British general and his army had at last surrendered. But at the time the people for the most part did not understand this, and, 
taking advantage of the popular sentiment, there was a movement to place Gates in command of the American army in place of Washington. However, this movement was defeated by the dignity and wisdom of Washington, and when the reaction came in the feelings of the people, as it almost always does come, he was really stronger than ever he had been. The British army in America naturally was alarmed when the action of France was learned, for it meant not only a war on one side of the ocean, but on the other also. And so it proved, for the ruling families of France and Spain were related, and as we are told that blood is thicker than water, we are not surprised that soon both Spain and France were fighting England. And for commercial reasons, not long afterward, brave little Holland joined the two nations that were contending with Great Britain. So by dividing England's forces and giving her a very serious war at home, France did aid the United States very materially, though it was in this way that she helped her far more than by fighting battles in America. As soon as Sir Henry Clinton, who had succeeded Howe in command, heard of the action that France had taken, he at once decided to abandon Philadelphia and hasten to New York, which he supposed would be the first place to be attacked. He was in something of a quandary, however, for there was a multitude of Tories in Philadelphia now, and many more who had become Tories, since they had accepted Howe's offer of pardon, and believing that his side was to be the winning side, had cast their lots with him. All of these people were terribly frightened at the thought of Clinton and the Redcoats leaving them to the just anger of Washington's army, which was still at Valley Forge, and not only better drilled and prepared to fight them than it had previously been, but also increased by the arrival of many of the men who had been fighting John Burgoyne the preceding summer. What Washington would do with them they did not know, but they thought they could conjecture, and so these unhappy people begged Sir Henry to take them with him to New York. Clinton listened to their piteous appeal, and finally used the fleet by which it had been planned to send the soldiers to New York to carry these Tories to the city, while he with the army would march across New Jersey to New Brunswick, where Howe's fleet, having taken its cargo of timid folk to New York, and returning to the Raritan, could meet the army, and from that place convey it to the desired haven. Before we follow the movements of the two armies, one fact must be mentioned. In the preceding summer a band of bold patriots had made their way to Newport, and had succeeded in capturing the British General Prescott, who was bitterly hated by the Americans. When Ethan Allen and his brave followers had surrendered, after contending for almost two hours against a force that had outnumbered them almost three to one in his Canadian expedition in 1775, and had been sent to Montreal with the understanding that they would all receive honorable treatment, Prescott, who was in command at Montreal at the time, had become so enraged when he learned that Ethan Allen was the man who had taken Ticonderoga, that he threatened to hang him, but after binding him hand and foot, he had placed him on board the Gaspy, the schooner of war, where a heavy bar of iron eight feet long was attached to his shackles, and after handcuffing the other Americans, he thrust them into the lowest part of the vessel. For five weeks, the daring Allen was kept in this condition before he was sent down to Quebec. There he was treated better, but was nevertheless sent to England to be tried for treason. He was at last sent back to Halifax, and from there he was sent to New York, where, after a long time had elapsed, he was finally exchanged and permitted to go back to his Vermont home, but his fighting days were ended. Many other similar tales of Prescott's cruelty might be related, but it is sufficient to say that the Americans hated him 
with a perfect hatred that was certainly just and deserved. He himself had previously been taken prisoner by the Americans and exchanged for General Sullivan. In the summer of 1777, Prescott was in command at Newport. Colonel William Barton, with a party of picked men in four whale boats, made their way one night to the place and, succeeding in passing the guards, at last approached the house in which Prescott had his quarters. There the sentry halted them with a demand for the countersign. We have no countersign to give, replied Colonel Barton. Have you seen any deserters? Misled by the question, the sentinel lowered his gun, when he was instantly seized and bound. Barton entered the front door of the house and inquired of the owner, a Mr. Overton, where General Prescott was. A motion of the hand informed him that the hated officer was in the room above, so the colonel with five men, one of whom was a powerful negro, went up the stairs and tried the door, but could not open it. At the colonel's word, Sisson, the negro, drew back a few paces and then drove his head against the panels, which instantly were splintered into a thousand pieces. General Prescott was in the room and, supposing the intruders to be robbers, tried to secure his valuables, but he was instantly seized by the men. A cloak was wrapped around him, for there was not even time for him to dress, and he was bidden to follow his captors, and informed that any noise or outcry on his part would mean instant death. The British general silently followed the daring men, until at last their escape had been accomplished, when, as they landed at Warwick Point, he said to Barton, Sir, you have made a bold push tonight. We have been fortunate, replied the colonel quietly. Prescott was soon afterward sent to Washington, and in the spring of 1778 was exchanged for General Lee, who now was with the Americans at Valley Forge, still a traitor at heart. Lee began by opposing everything that Washington suggested. He did not think the Americans should follow the retiring redcoats. He did not believe the rude Continentals could stand before the well-trained British soldiers. As he had a very persuasive tongue, it is easy to understand what a menace he was to Washington and the American army, none of whom understood at the time what traitorous work Lee had been doing, or trying to do, while he had been a prisoner in New York. It would have been far better if he had been left there, and the cruel Prescott held. In spite of all this, however, Washington, with his army of 15,000 men, decided to follow the retiring redcoats, and when, on the morning of June 18, 1778, Clinton marched out from Philadelphia, by the night of the very same day the American army entered the city, and so quiet were their movements that some of the belated stragglers of the British were cut off and made prisoners. Perhaps it would have been only what might have been expected of human nature if the incoming Americans had stopped to visit a just punishment upon such of the Tories as had decided to take their chances and remain in town, after the departure of their friends and Sir Henry Clinton. But the army was in too great haste to stop for such measures, and Benedict Arnold, whose wounded leg was not yet healed, was placed in command of the little force left behind. The members of Congress soon came in from York, and though indictments were made out against some of the traitorous Tories, only two of them were hanged. These two were friends, who had in person been the guides of some of the redcoats in the night attack upon a force of the Americans, and if any men ever deserved hanging, it is very certain that these two villains did. Afterward, all the other Tories were pardoned. 
Washington, who, of course, had been informed what Clinton's plan was to be, had decided to march rapidly across New Jersey in a line to the north of that followed by his enemy, and when he had gained a position in advance of the British, then he planned to turn back, and in some favorable place of his own selection, give battle to the British. Clinton, although his army was a little larger and much better equipped than Washington's, did not wish to fight now, but only to bring his forces safely to New York and join in others in protecting that city from the expected attack of the French. Washington was doing all in his power to hamper and delay Clinton, while he himself was making all haste to get ahead of him. Bands of militia and of patriots from New Jersey were cutting down the bridges before the advancing British. One poor fellow, as true a patriot as ever breathed, with a few companions, was cutting the stringers of a bridge as the advancing redcoats appeared. His comrades fled, but he remained, swiftly swinging his axe, until the British were close upon him. That bridge must come down, and as the last stroke of his axe fell, the bridge collapsed just as a dozen rifles rang out together, and the body of the patriot fell, pierced by every ball. The Hessians in Clinton's army formed the baggage train, and stretched out in a long line of twelve miles behind the British regulars. The intense heat, the heavy garb of the Dutch butchers, and the constant harassing by the Americans made the march of these men a terrible one. And at last, believing that Washington was planning to secure these supplies, Clinton placed the Hessians in front, and as a rear guard had his own chosen troops of the regulars. When the Americans arrived at Hopwell, the soldiers were so nearly worn out by the heat and the haste of the march that Washington decided to halt and give them a rest. At the same time he called a council of his officers and presented to them his plan of sending a detachment of his men to fall on the British, when he himself would follow with the rest of the army. There was a spirited discussion, and again Charles Lee opposed the plan. So eloquent and persuasive was he that a majority voted against the project, but Green, Mad Anthony Wayne, and others urged Washington to go on, and this he decided to do. Clinton had now learned that the American army was in advance of him, so, abandoning his plan of marching to the Raritan, he changed his course and moved toward the Navasink Highlands, where Howe was to meet him with his fleet and convey the army to the city. On June 28, 1778, the American army overtook the British at Monmouth Courthouse, Freehold, and there the famous Battle of Monmouth took place on that Sunday, one of the hottest days ever known in the history of New Jersey. Of the battle itself, no better account can be given than that in the letter descriptive of it, which General Washington himself sent to the President of Congress soon after the fight. General Washington's Description of the Battle of Monmouth English Town July 1st, 1778. Sir, I embrace this first moment of leisure to give Congress a more full and particular account of the movements of the army under my command, since its passing the Delaware, than the situation of our affairs would heretofore permit. I have the honor to advise them that on the appearance of the enemy's intentions to march through New Jersey becoming serious, I detached General Maxwell's brigade, in conjunction with the militia of that state, New Jersey, to interrupt and impede their progress by every obstruction in their power, so as to give time to the army under my command 
to come up with them and take advantage of any favorable circumstances that might present themselves. The army having proceeded to Coriel's Ferry and crossed the Delaware at that place, I immediately detached Colonel Morgan with a select corps of 600 men to reinforce General Maxwell and marched with the main body toward Princeton. The slow advances of the enemy had greatly the air of design, and led me with many others to suspect that General Clinton, desirous of a general action, was endeavoring to draw us down into the lower country, in order by a rapid movement to gain our right and take possession of the strong ground above us. This consideration, and to give troops the time to repose and refresh themselves from the fatigues they had experienced from rainy and excessive hot weather, determined me to halt at Hopewell Township, about five miles from Princeton, where we remained until the morning of the 25th. On the preceding day I made a second detachment of 1,500 chosen troops, under Brigadier General Scott, to reinforce those already in the vicinity of the enemy, the more effectually to annoy and delay their march. The next day the army moved to Kingston, and having received intelligence that the enemy were prosecuting their route toward Monmouth Courthouse, I dispatched ten hundred select men under Brigadier General Wayne, and sent the Marquis de Lafayette to take the command of the whole advanced corps, including Maxwell's brigade and Morgan's light infantry, with orders to take the first fair opportunity of attacking the enemy's rear. In the evening of the same day, the whole army advanced from Kingston, where our baggage was left, with intention to preserve a proper distance for supporting the advanced corps, and arrived at Cranberry early the next morning. The intense heat of the weather, and a heavy storm unluckily coming on, made it impossible for us to resume our march that day without great inconvenience and injury to the troops. Our advanced corps, being differently circumstanced, moved from the position it had held the night before, and took post in the evening on Monmouth Road, about five miles from the enemy's rear, in the expectation of attacking them the next morning on their march. The main body having remained at Cranberry, the advanced corps was found to be too remote and too far upon the right to be supported either in case of an attack upon or from the enemy, which induced me to send orders to the Marquis to file off by his left toward Englishtown, which he accordingly executed early in the morning of the 27th. The enemy, in marching from Allentown, had changed their disposition, and placed their best troops in the rear, consisting of all the grenadiers, light infantry, and chasseurs of the line. This alteration made it necessary to increase the number of our advanced corps, and in consequence of which I detached Major General Lee with two brigades to join the Marquis at Englishtown, on whom of course the command of the whole devolved, amounting to about 5,000 men. The main army marched the same day, and encamped within three miles of that place. Morgan's corps was left hovering on the enemy's right flank, and the Jersey militia amounting at this time to about seven or eight hundred men, under General Dickinson, on their left. The enemy were now encamped in a strong position, with their right extending about a mile and a half beyond the courthouse, in the parting of the road leading toward Shrewsbury and Middletown and their left along the road from Allentown to Monmouth, about three miles this side of the courthouse. Their right flank lay on the skirt of a small wood, while their left was secured by a very thick one, a morass running toward their rear, and their whole front covered by a wood. 
and to a considerable extent toward the left with a morass. In this situation they halted until the morning of the 28th. Matters being thus situated, and having had the best information that if the enemy were once arrived at the heights of Middletown, ten or twelve miles from where they were, it would be impossible to attempt anything against them with a prospect of success. I determined to attack their rear the moment they should get in motion from their present ground. I communicated my intention to General Lee, and ordered him to make his disposition for the attack, and to keep his troops constantly lying upon their arms, to be in readiness at the shortest notice. This was done with respect to the troops under my immediate command. At about five in the morning, General Dickinson sent an express informing that the front of the enemy had begun their march. I instantly put the army in motion and sent orders by one of my aides to General Lee to move on and attack them, unless there should be any powerful reasons to the contrary, acquainting him at the same time that I was marching to support him, and for doing it with the greatest expedition and convenience, should make the men disencumber themselves of their packs and blankets. After marching five miles, to my great surprise and mortification, I met the whole advanced corps retreating, and as I was told, by General Lee's orders, without having made any opposition, except one fire given by the party under the command of Colonel Butler, on their being charged by the enemy's cavalry, who were repulsed. I proceeded immediately to the rear of the corps, which I found closely pressed by the enemy, and gave directions for forming part of the retreating troops who, by the brave and spirited conduct of the officers, aided by some pieces of well-served artillery, checked the enemy's advances, and gave time to make a disposition of the left and second lines of the army upon the eminence and in a wood a little in the rear, covered by a morass in front. On this were placed some batteries of cannon by Lord Stirling, who commanded the left wing, which played upon the enemy with great effect, and, seconded by parties of infantry detached to oppose them, effectually put a stop to their advance. General Lee being detached with the advanced corps, the command of the right wing was given, for the occasion, to General Green. For the expedition of the march, and to counteract any attempt to turn our right, I had ordered him to file off by the new church two miles from Englishtown, and fall into Monmouth Road, a small distance in the rear of the courthouse, while the rest of the column moved on directly toward the courthouse. On the intelligence of the retreat, he marched up, and took a very advantageous position on the right. The enemy, by this time finding themselves warmly opposed in front, made an attempt to turn our left flank, but they were bravely repulsed and driven back by detached parties of infantry. They also made a movement toward our right with as little success. General Green having advanced a body of troops with artillery to a commanding piece of ground, which not only disappointed their design of turning our right, but severely infiltrated those in front of the left wing. In addition to this, General Wayne advanced with a body of troops and kept up so severe and well-directed a fire that the enemy were soon compelled to retire behind the defile, where the first stand in the beginning of the action had been made. In this situation, the enemy had both their flanks secured by thick woods and morasses, while their front could only be approached through a narrow pass. I resolved, nevertheless, to attack them, and for that purpose ordered General Poor, with his own and the Carolina Brigade, to move round upon their right, and General Woodford upon their left, 
and the artillery to gall them in front, but the impediments in the way prevented their getting within reach before it was dark. They remained upon the ground they had been directed to occupy during the night, with the intention to begin the attack early the next morning, and the army continued lying upon their arms in the field of action to be ready to support them. In the meantime, the enemy were employed in removing their wounded, and, about twelve o'clock at night, marched away in such silence that, although General Poor lay extremely near them, they effected their retreat without his knowledge. They carried off all their wounded except four officers and about forty privates, whose wounds were too dangerous to permit their removal. The extreme heat of the weather, the fatigue of the men from their march through a deep, sandy country, almost entirely destitute of water, and the distance the enemy had gained by marching in the night made a pursuit impracticable and fruitless. It would have answered no valuable purpose, and proved fatal to numbers of our men, several of whom died the preceding day with heat. Were I to conclude my account of this day's transactions, without expressing my obligations to the officers of the army in general, I should do injustice to their merit, and violence to my own feelings. They seemed to vie with each other in manifesting their zeal and bravery. The catalogue of those who distinguished themselves is too long to admit of particularizing individuals. I cannot, however, forbear mentioning Brigadier General Wayne, whose conduct and bravery during the whole action deserves particular commendation. The behavior of the troops in general, after they recovered from the first surprised occasion by the retreat of the advanced corps, was such as could not be surpassed. All the artillery, both officers and men, that were engaged distinguished themselves in a remarkable manner. Enclosed, Congress will be pleased to receive a return of our killed and wounded. Among the first were Lieutenant Colonel Bunner of Pennsylvania and Major Dickinson of Virginia, both distinguished officers and much to be regretted. The enemies slain on the field and buried by us, according to the return of the persons assigned to that duty, were four officers and 245 privates. In the former was the Honorable Colonel Monckton. Exclusive of these, they buried some themselves, as there were several new graves near the field of battle. How many men they have wounded cannot be determined, but, from the usual proportion, the number must have been considerable. There were a few prisoners taken. The peculiar situation of General Lee at this time requires that I should say nothing of his conduct. He is now in arrest. The charges against him, with such sentence as the court-martial may decree in his case, shall be transmitted, for the approbation or disapprobation of Congress, as soon as it shall have passed. Being fully convinced by the gentlemen of this country that the enemy cannot be hurt or injured in their embarkation at Sandy Hook, the place to which they are now moving, and unwilling to get too far removed from the North River, I put the troops in motion early this morning, and shall proceed that way, leaving the Jersey Brigade, Morgan's Corps, and other light parties, the militia being dismissed, to hover about them, countenance desertion, and prevent depredations as far as possible. After they embark, the former will take post in the neighborhood of Elizabethtown, the latter rejoin the corps from which they were detached. I have the honor, etc., G. Washington. When Lee had ordered the retreat from the field, Washington, as we know, was at some distance in the rear, coming up with the main body. The retreating men themselves did not understand what they were doing, 
where apparently all things had been in their favor during the brief engagement, and Mad Anthony was almost beside himself with rage and grief. As Washington rode forward, he met a fifer, who in response to his question replied that the Americans were retreating. Threatening to have the man whipped in the presence of the army if he dared repeat such words, the general again rode forward, and soon the straggling soldiers convinced him that the division was indeed leaving the field. Instantly, every power of the great leader seemed to be roused. He sent forward his aides, he gave his commands, and soon was himself face to face with Charles Lee, the cause of all the trouble. "'What is the meaning of this, sir?' thundered Washington in his wrath. "'Sir, sir,' stammered Lee. Again Washington demanded the explanation, and the miserable Lee tried to explain that his order had been misunderstood. But the commander was too angry to pause and listen. It seemed as if all his plans and hopes, his patient labors, and even the hopes of the new nation were to be blasted by the treachery of one man. In a towering rage he left the stammering Lee, although afterward he gave him a command in the battle. He no doubt now understood this man. After the battle, Lee wrote Washington an insulting letter, in which he tried to bolster up his own vanity and poke fun at the pretensions and tinsel dignity, as he termed it, of the commander. Washington instantly arrested Lee and ordered a court-martial, from which, through the large-mindedness of Washington, he came forth with only a sentence of dismissal for one year. Surely he deserved a more severe punishment than that, but Washington never appeared to better advantage than in his magnanimous conduct toward the treacherous Lee at this time. He preferred to suffer wrong rather than take any chances of doing it. Charles Lee wrote so many scurrilous letters to papers and people in which he abused Washington that soon after he was expelled from the army, and so relief at last was had. Molly Pitcher is one of the famous characters of the Battle of Monmouth. Her husband, a gunner, had fallen when she sprang to his place and fired the cannon. She was cheered by the men, and afterward honored, by the recommendation of General Green, with the commission of a sergeant, and was familiarly known as Captain Molly. The story is true, but it is not true as it is frequently told. Molly Pitcher was a name applied by the Continental soldiers, in their hot and weary march through Jersey, to any woman who brought them water to drink. Perhaps this woman had the nickname also, but her true name was Molly Macaulay, and though her early home had been in Monmouth County, New Jersey, she afterward lived and died and was buried in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. She is said to have been a large, red-haired, powerful Irish woman. The day of the battle was extremely hot, the thermometer before sunrise having registered 96 degrees in the shade. Both sides suffered intensely from the heat. But the British suffered more than their foes, as they were clad in a heavy uniform, and the poor Hessians suffered most of all, as they obstinately refused to discard any part of the heavy garb they wore. For the Americans, Mad Anthony's men set an example by throwing aside their coats and going into the fight in their shirt-sleeves, and not satisfied with this, afterward rolled up their sleeves and fought with bare arms. An old record informs us that, the tongues of great numbers were so swollen as to render them incapable of speaking. Many of both armies perished solely from the heat, and after the battle were seen dead upon the field without mark or wound, under the trees and beside the rivulet where they had crawled for shade and water. 
The countenances of the dead were so blackened as to render it impossible to recognize individuals. Several houses in Freehold, Monmouth Courthouse, were filled with the wounded of the enemy left on their retreat in the care of their surgeons and nurses. Every room in the courthouse was filled. They lay upon the floor on straw, and the supplications of the wounded and moans of the dying presented a scene of woe. As fast as they died, their corpses were promiscuously thrown into a pit on the site of the present, 1844, residence of Dr. Throckmorton, and slightly covered with earth. Could there be a more terrible picture of war than this? Two other incidents are perhaps worthy of record. Captain Cook of the Virginia Corps was shot through the lungs. He was ordered by his surgeon not to speak. An officer came into the room and, upon his not answering a question, reported him dead. Upon this intelligence, Washington ordered one of the few coffins to be placed under his window. The officer, however, recovered, lived for years, and was a frequent visitor in the region. A French work has the following. A general officer of the Americans advanced with a score of men under the English batteries to reconnoiter their position. His aide-de-camp, struck by a ball, fell at his side. The officers and orderly dragoons fled precipitously. The general, though under the fire of the cannon, approached the wounded man to see if he had any signs of life remaining, or whether any aid could be afforded him. Finding the wound had been mortal, he turned away his head with emotion, and slowly rejoined the group who had got out of reach of the pieces. General Clinton knew that the Marquis de Lafayette generally rode a white horse. It was upon a white horse the officer who retired so slowly was mounted. Clinton desired the gunners not to fire. This noble forbearance probably saved M. de Lafayette's life, for he it was. In other ways, however, it is to be feared that Clinton was not so careful, for the depredations of the British in the vicinity were terrible. Houses, barns, crops, furniture, etc., were not spared. And even the aged woman in whose house Clinton made his quarters did not escape, for her furniture was carried away, hardly a change of clothing being left for her or her venerable husband. As after the Battle of Trenton, so after Monmouth, many of the Hessians were tempted to desert. They had no heart for the war, and the personal solicitations of men and the written promise of a good farm, a promise which was written on a small piece of paper and placed within a package of tobacco and sent among the Hessians, induced many to desert the cause of King George and settle in the new land, where, it is a pleasure to relate, the most of those who heeded the words became staunch and respected citizens of the United States. After the Battle of Monmouth, as we have already learned from Washington's letter, the army was moved to the Hudson, and Washington made his camp at White Plains, while the enemy was safe within the shelter of New York. Clinton was now afraid that an attack would be made upon the city, but Washington by this time had come to the conclusion that the hope of final victory lay more in trying to hold the Redcoats in and keep them from inflicting damage, and at last in making them so weary of the war that they would be glad to abandon it, than in taking many chances of open battles, for which the British were really much better prepared than he. Besides, great things were now expected of the new allies, the French, but the expectations were for the most part doomed to failure through no fault of the Americans. Count d'Estaing had sailed for America about the middle of April, with six frigates and twelve ships of the line, 
having on board a minister for the United States, M. Girard, and the 4,000 troops which had been promised. They arrived at the mouth of the Delaware July 8, 1778, but upon learning that the British had gone to New York, they too sailed away for that port. An attack was planned, but finally, when it was decided that the large French vessels could not cross the bar, the plan was changed, and it was decided to go to Newport, the only other port the British then held except New York. Much was expected of this attack, for General Sullivan, who was in command at Providence, was strengthened by a force of picked men under Green, who was himself a Rhode Island man, and acquainted not only with the people of the state, but with every foot of the region itself. And soon, by the arrival of neighboring New England militia, the force consisted of 9,000 Americans and 4,000 Frenchmen, in addition to Destang's fleet. As Sir Robert Pigott, who was in command at Newport, had only about 6,000 men all told, it was confidently believed that every redcoat on the island would soon be a prisoner. And so they would, had not misunderstandings arisen between the Americans and their allies, Destang having been irritated at what he was pleased to call the undue haste of Sullivan in landing his men at a little hill in the northern part of the island called Butts Hill. However, all might yet have gone well had not, just in time, Admiral Howe appeared with a fleet from New York. The French immediately withdrew from the island and prepared to fight the ships and frigates of Howe. For two days the two fleets pretended to be eager to get at each other, though there were people who declared that one was afraid and the other dare not. But a terrific storm then arose that compelled the French sailors and English alike to forget all but themselves and seek for their own safety. As soon as the French admiral found that the storm was past, he insisted upon his soldiers and sailors going to Boston to repair the fleet. The same work might have been done in Providence, but go to Boston he would, despite all the protests and offers of aid. Very naturally the Americans were indignant at their fickle allies, and the situation was made worse by a third of the little army declaring that the British could not be driven out of Newport, and that they themselves must go home to look after their crops. This left the Americans with only about the same number of men that the British had, and Pigott, the British commander, plucking up fresh courage, for up to this time he had good reason to be fearful, made an attack on Butts Hill, but was not able to drive the Americans away. Word was now received that 500 fresh British soldiers were already on their way to Newport from New York, so Sullivan withdrew and the ill-feeling between the French and Americans became so marked that riots between the sailors occurred, and Destang made matters worse by inviting the Canadians to seize the opportunity to become Frenchmen again. So part of the object of the French in offering their aid to the United States became apparent, and naturally the Americans were highly indignant. But Newport was now abandoned by the British, and so the relief and release of the place was accomplished after all, and without bloodshed. In November 1778, the French fleet sailed away for the West Indies, and General Clinton at once was compelled to strengthen the English forces in those islands. So when 5,000 of the Redcoats sailed away from New York, fearful that Washington, the old fox, might think it a good time to make that attack upon the city of which the British were ever talking, though as yet it had failed to appear, the force of Pigott at Newport was withdrawn from that town and also brought to New York. Indirectly, the French had of course helped the Americans by weakening the forces of the British, 
but directly they had done very little. And that the Americans should not have been overwhelmed by a feeling of gratitude and admiration was not surprising. Perhaps the impulsive General Sullivan had given voice to the feelings of many beside himself when, in his exasperation, he declared America to be able to procure that by her own arms, which her allies refused to assist in obtaining. He may have been only whistling to keep up his courage, but he certainly expressed the desire, if he did not the expectation, of most of his countrymen. End of chapter 24